This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. All right, and welcome to another edition of TraumaCast. Uh, it's a really exciting topic we have today, and I'm really excited for our for our guests. Um, this TraumaCast is especially timely, I think, um, as we near the beginning of another academic year in medicine. All across the country, newly minted doctors are heading off to residency, and many of them, in particular residents in surgery and emergency medicine, will be taking ATLS, or Advanced Trauma Life Support, in preparation for taking trauma call. Uh, I remember my time as a brand new resident, I was terrified, and I think I was most terrified of being on trauma call because it seemed so complex at the time, and ATLS was very reassuring because it kind of broke it down into manageable steps. Our topic today is the ATLS course, and joining me are several guests who have special experience and insight into the course. Uh, First off, let me welcome my co-moderator, Kevin Pei from Yale. Thank you for joining us, Kevin. Great to be here. Thanks. If I could, I'll have you each introduce yourself. Let me start first with uh, Heather Talbot. Heather, will you introduce yourself, please? Sure. My name is Heather Talbot, and I'm the Trauma Program Manager at Bryan Medical Center in Lincoln, Nebraska, formerly Lincoln General Hospital. Okay, great. Thank you for joining us. Um, Mr. Randy Steiner, tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Randy Steiner. I'm an emergency manager at Cal State Los Angeles. Uh, My history is trauma. I was there the night it was created, and I've written a book about the inception called the light of the moon life death and the birth of it at trauma life support it's great to be here okay thanks for joining us also join us is dr ronald craig dr craig thank you for joining us i'm glad to be here um obviously i'm dr ronald craig and my attachment here is that i was a family physician on faculty at lincoln medical education foundation now lincoln medical education partnership uh, family practice residency program, and the concept was forwarded to us to uh, see about making a, a system like ACLS out of uh, into a, uh, making ATLS into a system like a, uh, ACLS. Okay, great. Um, let me start off first, um, Heather. Let's start with you. Um, first off, what got you interested in this topic? And I should I should mention that. Uh, uh, Heather actually approached us at East uh, to uh, help with sort of taking this idea and this concept and this uh, really the story and history and uh, bring it to a wider audience. So thank you, Heather, for the suggestion. Sure. Well, about two years ago, um, I began to think about our history here at Bryan Medical Center. Um, we are a level two ACS verified trauma center. We were the first in the state of Nebraska uh, to become verified. Uh, we're busy. We see about 2,000 uh, trauma patients a year. Um, with that being said, we're a community hospital. Uh, I'm very proud of the work that we do here uh, in Lincoln, Nebraska. And at the time, I was the outreach coordinator. And what that is is I would go out and I would educate um, our critical access hospitals, our EMS folks. And I always started with um, – ATLS and our history here in Lincoln, and I would talk about Dr. Steiner and his plane crash, 
and how ATLS started right here. Um, what I wanted to do, how this initially started is, I simply set out to find Dr. Steiner. Um, I wanted to contact him and show him what he started. Um, he's a pillar uh, of why we are what we are today. Um, you know, we have a beautiful facility, we have amazing nurses, amazing physicians, great community support, and, and that's really how it started. Um, I, I did find Dr. Steiner, um, I thought, um, but he was no longer in California, but instead I found Randy, his son, um, and I learned that Dr. Steiner was no longer here in the U.S. Um, he had relocated. Um, so I reached out to Randy and kind of told him who I was and uh, started uh, talking with him and just letting him know what I was doing and sending him information about who we are here at Bryan and, you know, thanking him for what his family contributed to uh, to our medical center, and not only to the medical center, but to the world. I mean, ATLS, as we all know, it's taught around the world and has saved millions of lives. After I connected with Randy, um, you know, I learned so much, and I love history, and so I reached out to Dr. Collicott, who's very well known um, at the ACS as well, and he met with me, uh, told me some history, uh, as well as Irvine Hughes Collicott, who was the first ATLS coordinator at the ACS. And again, just listening to their stories about how they got ACS or ATLS off the ground, um, you know, the very first courses, hearing about all the region chiefs coming to Lincoln for the very first, you know, course, um, how Dr. McSwain came from Louisiana. It was January. He didn't bring the coat. So, you know, the guy from Louisiana with no coat, it was snowing, and just, you know, some of those background stories that nobody knows about, um, they're amazing stories. Uh, Dr. Craig and I actually just recently, within the last couple months, had just connected, and a couple weeks ago he invited me into his home, and he has the original slide set from ATLS, and he had it all set up, and he presented it to me, and, and again, if we've got to get this information out. This is amazing, amazing history, and um, I'm just proud that, that we're getting it out for, for the listeners and we're getting these folks that originated it the recognition they deserve. That's great, and, and thank you so much. I, I agree with everything that you've said. I think the history of medicine is always interesting and fascinating, and I think this ATLS course has touched, like you said, so many people throughout the, throughout the world, really, and uh, so I think I'm really excited about this this discussion here, so thank you. Um, maybe first off, let's go to uh, Randy Steiner. Why don't you tell us, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about your father and then maybe about uh, a little bit about what happened that fateful night that started the ball in motion here for, for ATLS. Okay, great. Um, yeah, my, my dad is Dr. James Steiner. Um, as Heather indicated, he, he has retired. He has since uh, relocated to the Philippines um, where he's, he's still with us, uh, still doing fairly well um, and, and hanging in there. He would have loved to have been here, but the logistics made it fairly difficult. Um, so I, I have to say right up front, I'm, I'm standing in for him. I, I really wish he could be here to, to, to do this part and tell this story. Um, my, my dad was, a, at the time, in 1976, he was a, a, a orthopedic surgeon at Lincoln General Hospital. Um, and being a surgeon and working with a lot of the, the local um, rural hospitals in the area, he, he uh, 
was a pilot, and we flew a lot of places to get to those hospitals. We also, um, in so much that we had a plane, were able to use that for vacations. Um, on February 17, 1976, we had been vacationing in Cerritos, California, uh, visiting my grandmother. We'd come out for a wedding, and um, we're leaving out of uh, Fullerton Municipal Airport in Fullerton, California, down in Orange County. Um, we took off from there uh, to head back to Lincoln, Nebraska um, to get home. Uh, we started out fairly early in the morning, landed in Farmington, had a break and had some lunch, and then uh, continued out to, to uh, Lincoln. Um, we were about halfway over Kansas, and uh, there was a storm on the ground, a sort of a blizzard going on, so a lot of the airports in the area were closed. But ahead of us, uh, my dad, who was piloting the plane at the time, and, and the plane was uh, my father. My mother was his co-pilot. She was in the right seat. My dad was in the left seat. And my brother, Chris, was up right behind him in the plane. My sister, baby sister, Kim, Chris was 10. Kim was 4. And then behind them was uh, my brother, Rick, who was 9, and then me, who was 8. Um, and I guess it's, it, it's important to say, you know, while telling this story, that in the actual airplane was a Beechcraft Baron. Um, those back two seats were accessible through a little hatch, which I happened to be sitting next to, and that would become significant later. Um, however, flying across Kansas, uh, my dad came up against a, uh, a low layer of clouds that had, had happened, a front that had occurred. Um, he attempted to fly underneath the clouds, um, doing some calculations and, and seeing that he had enough altitude between the bottoms of the clouds and the ground. Uh, unfortunately, he uh, made some errors in those calculations, and about 6.20 that night, uh, we impacted a tree line in the middle of a field um, doing about 169 miles an hour. Uh, the plane impacted into the field and slid about 250 yards or so. We had picked up a barbed wire fence as we slid. Um, Fortunately, the wings, the way we hit the trees, the wings were ripped off the airplane, which is where all the fuel was, and had that not happened, I wouldn't be here talking to you right now. I have no doubt, um, neither would any of my family. Uh, my dad doesn't recall whether or not he was actually knocked unconscious, although he does remember becoming aware. And what he always says, which always struck me, was the first thing that that hit him was the smell of the, the gas fumes, that, that 100 double L aviation fuel, which has a very distinctive odor, um, sort of hanging in the air. And he uh, thought that the plane was going to catch fire. He panicked, got his seatbelt off, got out of the airplane. Um, and he fell off the, the wing and landed in the barbed wire, and that kind of got his attention. Um, then coming sort of aware of what was going on, he while he was trying to get his bearings, he heard the voice of my brother Chris from the inside of the plane. He went to the plane to help. At that point, he was kind of confronted by some, some really horrible things. Uh, the first being that the seat where my mom was sitting, that the seat that he had just scampered over to get out of the airplane was empty, um, and her seatbelt was hanging off. Uh, there was a very large um, gash in the side of the airplane where she was sitting, um, and he had thought that maybe she had been able to get out after the impact. Uh, so he did a quick call for her but couldn't find her. It was, it was very dark at that point, I should also say. And it was also very cold. It was going to get down to, to, to 31 degrees at night. Um, so it was, it was getting into the freezing point, you know, even then. And we weren't in any way prepared for the cold. We were dressed as people coming from California. 
Um, but my, my dad was able to, to engage my brother in the airplane. Uh, my, my sister, uh, just by chance, my mother had handed my sister back to him just before the, the impact, and um, he was able to take her on his lap and buckle her in, which uh, ended up saving her life. Um, she was unconscious, but he was, he was conscious. He managed to get her out of the airplane, and uh, my dad took her and brought her to an assembly area near the, near the wreckage, about, about 30 yards from the wreckage. Um, later down on the ground, it was just, it was uh, frozen from the from the winter there. Um, they went back to the plane to to uh, retrieve my brother Rick, who was uh, had a had a head injury. He was going in and out of consciousness. It was in really bad shape. Managed to get him out. Um, I say when he when he first noticed that my mother was missing, he had looked down by the side of the plane and he saw that that hatch that I was talking about had been ripped open. And doing a quick inspection, he saw that my leg had fallen out of the airplane. I was had been uh, dragged about halfway out of the plane. Um, so the seatbelt somehow kept me in, was now wrapped around my chest and my armpit, and I was stuffed into the, the little area between the, the, the seat and the, the seat backs of the row in front of us. But he couldn't get me out. At that point, he, didn't, he couldn't tell if I was alive or dead. He couldn't detect any pulse. Uh, my leg was ice cold. Uh, so he got everybody else out of the airplane, like I indicated, then went back to the plane to try and free me. Um, he found out that I was still alive, but that the leg was impaled underneath the airplane and buried, um, he managed to dig it out, uh, dig a, a trench around the leg, you know, used nothing but his bare hands, um, and, and saw that the, the impalement had, had actually gouged a, a pretty significant uh, wound into the back of my leg. He was anticipating that uh, when he removed the leg, that it was going to open up and I was, I was going to be in, in danger of bleeding out. So he had fashioned a tourniquet to get ready for that. But when he removed the leg, um, he, there, there was no bleeding, or very little bleeding, which really surprised him. I found out later um, from Dr. Bruce Miller, who was his partner in Lincoln, um, also at Lincoln General Hospital, he said that if he'd have made that incision in, in surgery, he could have done a better job. The, the, the gash was about a 10-inch gash down the back of my leg, went right between the popliteal nerve and the, the femoral artery. So, you know, millimeters to either direction, and it would have been a whole different story for me. Um, but he managed to get me out and, and, you know, brought us to the assembly area, then went to look for my mom, but um, he couldn't find her in the dark. He had managed to find a little pen light, like the ones that doctors use to check your eyes, and um, that was the only source of light he had, so he, his, his ability to conduct a thorough search was, was highly impeded. He was also injured. Uh, he had some, some bad facial injuries, was having problems seeing. He had some broken ribs. Um, all the rest of us were, were pretty badly injured as well. But he managed to uh, uh, search around the plane, but not finding my mother. He made the determination that since there wasn't going to be probably a fire issue in the plane, and since it was getting so cold, he was going to turn his focus on getting us back into the airplane, which he did. Um, then he he got us all sort of situated in there and tucked clothing around us and uh, then went to do a more extensive search for my mother. Um, he found the debris field going out from the back of the plane and went about 20 yards before he came across her. Uh, she had been killed. She had uh, suffered a compound skull fracture from a piece of, of debris hitting her in the head, and she had also been ejected. After she had set, given my uh, sister back to my, my brother, she neglected to put her seatbelt on, so she was ejected from the airplane and killed. Um, at that point, we waited for about another eight hours. Um, we knew that the locator beacon on the plane was working. My dad could see the, the light was indicating that it had, it had been activated, but... Unfortunately, at the time, you know, being uh, the technology, being radio signals, the only way anybody could hear that beacon is if they were tuned to it. So 
Um, but he was still pretty, uh, getting pretty frustrated that we hadn't gotten any um, any help, that any search teams had, had come for us. Um, so he made the decision, uh, getting on around 2 a.m. to uh, go f and try to find some help. He had, he knew that there was a a road nearby. Um, we could they the my brother and him could hear the uh, the the traffic going on the road. But and you know, <laughs> as, as my friends from from Nebraska will know, in the winter time, especially at night, you can hear a road or cars going across the road, and it can sound like it's right next to you, but it can literally be miles away. So. Um, he was afraid of going out in the dark and being so pitch black because the overcast had cut out all ambient light, and he said he literally couldn't see his hand in front of his face. So he was afraid to go and, and try and find that road. But then around 2 a.m., the uh, overcast started breaking up, and this big full moon came out, and that kind of changed everything. Um, so he made the decision to go and try and find the road. He made it out um, to a little country road near the, the impact site and made his way down to Highway 69. Um, running east and or north and, and south, um, really a, a long stretch of road. I think it goes all the way from Canada down to the Gulf Coast. But uh, he found that highway, and a couple of um, semi trucks came, but they went right past him, literally forced him off the road. And uh, while he was kind of trying to shake that off, another car came. That car had a couple of guys named Ricky Arnold and David McLaughlin in it. Um, they stopped. They were coming home from their factory job. They just got off the night shift. And were on their way home when they encountered my dad. Um, they agreed to help him and took him back to the airplane to, to uh, try and get us into their car and get us some help. We were about five miles from the little town of Hebron, Nebraska, which had a medical center, an actual hospital. Um, so that was, the plan was to get us out of the airplane and take us there. Um, what my dad couldn't know at that point is that the, the, the Civil Air Patrol, the Nebraska Civil Air Patrol, the composite, uh, 155th Composite Squadron out of Lincoln, Nebraska, had been searching for us since about 10 o'clock, but they hadn't quite locked it onto us. A Air Force plane um, up uh, around the South Dakota-Nebraska border had picked up our beacon and um, on their emergency frequency, and they had been had deployed the Civil Air Patrol, but they were having difficulty finding our location. Um, they they had a, a a gentleman named Larry Russell who was a helicopter pilot who later joined the search, and he was able to find our our beacon and, and started heading for it, but by that time we were already in Ricky and David's car headed to the hospital. And we got to uh, Hebron uh, Hospital a little later, and you know, it took us about probably 15 minutes or so to get there. Um, and when when we got to the hospital, initially there were there were two uh, night nurses there. Uh, there uh, was nobody else in the hospital. The hospital was closed, and um, they kept the hospital locked up. If, you know, the normal procedure was if something happened and they needed to open the hospital, they could contact the medical staff and um, get the hospital or the emergency room prepared to accept the, uh, the, the casualties. But in this case, they didn't get any warning. So um, when Ricky and David and my dad got to the door, it was locked. And this really um, made my dad sick because he had a little bit of, of trouble convincing uh, the, the, the nurse that, that he needed access to the hospital. Um, that took a little while. She said that there would have to be a doctor present for them to be admitted, at which point he smacked his hand on the glass and said, a doctor's here, open this expletive door. Um, at that point, she realized that something terrible had happened, and she, she obviously wasn't informed. So she opened the door. At that point, my dad was really irate and got in, started ordering them around, and really, since there were no other doctors there, he went right into doctor mode and started taking care of us and, and, and taking charge of our care. Uh, he got us situated. 
a little while later, a couple of doctors, uh, Dr. Pemery and Dr. Bunting, showed up. Um, they were the emergency room doctors. Um, but some uh, medical decisions, which I don't need to go into, um, that they made um, kind of made my dad realize that he, he wasn't uh, confident with their ability to uh, take care of us. So he basically told them to leave us alone, that he would handle it. Um, and, and he basically took over our care, and there really wasn't anything that the hospital staff could do about it. You know, of course, there's tons and tons of, of after sight on that, and but you know, at the time, they just really didn't know what to do, so they, they just let my dad do his thing. Um, back at the crash site, Larry Russell, the helicopter pilot, had found the wreckage. He located, got the Civil Air Patrol to head that direction, and he headed to, he heard on the, the, his, his common frequency channel on his radio that there something was going on at the hospital, and things were in a, in a kind of getting a little crazy there. So he figured, put two and two together, figured that had to be us, and, and made his way, took it flew over to the Hebron Airport and made his way to the hospital. Um, he says when he got there, it was in, in 35 years of law enforcement work, he told me it was the most surreal thing he'd ever seen in his life, that the doctors and medical staff were just kind of standing around watching this guy who was bloody and muddy and ripped up from head to toe. Um, he described it as uh, going, you know, a few rounds with Mike Tyson. This is what my dad looked like. He could actually make out the the – uh, outline of the instrument casings from the bruises in my dad's head from his impact into the into the dash of the plane. Um, he he knew my dad. They worked, uh, you know, as as you know, law enforcement and doctors, and especially in small towns, work in similar circles. So they did know each other. In fact, my dad knew that hospital staff too. He'd done consults down at Hebron Hospital before, but he made no indication he recognized anybody. And uh, Larry, uh, the, at first, didn't recognize him. It was only until somebody said that's Dr. Steiner that Larry realized who he was. So he engaged my dad and said, you know, we, you're, you're no, basically talked him into understanding he was in no shape to do this and he had to get us out of here. And my dad just kept telling him, just get us to Lincoln, just get us to Lincoln. He wanted us to go to Lincoln General Hospital. Um, Larry had a few strings, and about half an hour later, a big uh, Air National Guard UH-1 Huey landed in the hospital parking lot, and we were all loaded aboard and flown back to uh, to, to uh, Lincoln. Um, we met were met by ambulance at the Lincoln Airport, and they rushed us to Lincoln General Hospital and uh, started putting us all back together. Um, Rick and, and Kim and I were all in comas. My brother Chris had suffered a, a, a full bone fracture of his forearm. And lost some skin on his hand. Um, I was I had a, a, a the, my leg injury, and I also had suffered a, a pretty bad head injury from hitting the back of the seat. Had to have a piece of my scalp put back into place. Um, Rick had suffered a closed skull fracture, and Kim had suffered a, a facial fracture and a head head injury as well. Like I said, we were all in comas. I was in a coma for three days. Uh, Rick was in a coma for seven, and Kim was in a coma for five. Um, so that was basically a story. I, I could probably um, kick it over to Dr. Craig at this point. I can say that in the days that followed that, my, my dad was was really um, complaining a lot about what happened in the hospital, and uh, he credits Dr. Craig with, with sort of giving him the kick in the seat of the pants to actually do something about it instead of just complaining about it. And uh, at this point, I should probably uh, let, let Dr. Craig tell his part of the story. Yeah, well, thank you for that description. My gosh, it was uh, unbelievable. I mean, absolutely unbelievable what you guys went through. And um, thank you for sharing those uh, very intimate and personal details. Um, 
yeah, Dr. Craig, why don't you pick up the story and kind of go from there? Uh, what, you know, how did how did uh, you get involved with this, and and where did you take the take the ball from here? Well, at the time of the accident, I was uh, working in the emergency room at Lincoln General, and so I was there when they arrived. And uh, you know, since I knew them all from before, we were go to the same church and we were friends. And it's you know, common ER stuff. You just get everybody assembled. We had plenty of time to uh, get the surgeons in and get all the specialists we needed. So that part of it I'm not going to deal with too much because it's just typical medical stuff in the hospital. Uh, where I think we probably ought to go is to fast forward probably a year. And at this time I have moved from the uh, emergency room to the family practice program as faculty. And in conversations with uh, Jim Steiner, he would rant and rant and rant about the level of care. And so finally I said, well, why don't you do something about it? And he said, well, I don't know how. I said, well, I don't know either, but uh, we'll think about it. Uh, as it happens, Dr. Jay Upright and his wife Jody uh, took me, uh, let me back one up there. Uh, Jay was the uh, CEO of Lincoln Medical Education Foundation. And they were dabbling in emergency medical services for the community. And he and his wife took me to a emergency medical services conference in Chicago. And we attended the meeting all day. And we were sitting in a bar, amazing that, uh, having a drink that night and talking about what we've seen during the day. And I started thought, you know, could we take the advanced cardiac life support format and do that with trauma. So I was discussing that with them, and I saw in their faces this little look of recognition and a smile. I knew I'd been sandbagged at this point. That's why they had me here. They'd already had that idea. So after that, uh, we decided that, hey, this is a good enough idea. Let's run with it for a while and see what we can. In doing that, I went back to Jim and said, hey, Jim, would you work with us on this? And he was more than enthusiastic, too. And then several other people, like Dr. Collicott and uh, John Reed and a few others, were kind of interested in listening to what we were proposing and would give us feedback for it. And Jim and I would spend two to three nights a week sitting in my dining room writing this thing up in the format we thought it should be. Then we'd take it to some of the other guys, and they'd edit it and kick it around and finally, we got it put together to the point that we thought, well, we might actually have a course here. And so we decided, well, we better take it somewhere and see if the other doctors really appreciate it. So we went down to Auburn and put on a, I think it was one-day uh, seminar there. And that went over extremely well. So we then decided, well, let's try it somewhere else and make a few changes so we put on a two-day seminar out at Scotts Bluff, which was also received, received very well. At this point, we think we have something that probably is ready to roll out on the stage. And I can't speak about this for sure, but I think that the American Academy of Family Physicians was offered this program as it was intended for small-town docs. And they indicated they really didn't want to deal, deal with that. 
And Dr. Collicott of the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma said they'd like it. And so basically the rest of it's history. Can you um, talk about the early courses that you were putting on and what did they look like and what sort of content did you deal with and, and um, you know, how, how does it maybe compare to the more uh, recent courses? Did you have the ABCs, for example, and all the lingo and the terminology that we're all familiar no, with? We, <laughs> we had very little. Our most, most sophisticated uh, piece of equipment that we bought was a Mr. Hurt head. We had all the head injuries on it. And other than that, we resorted to homemade slides and you know, just hands on, you know, this is how you splint things, this is how you put a collar on, this is how you move people. Uh, we went through all the basics as far as uh, fluid resuscitation and so forth. And what uh, what was your involvement with the, after the American College of Surgeons got involved, were you still engaged in further development? or? I was a trainer or trainer. Uh, in that program for probably four or five years after that. And then I just sort of drifted away from it. And it sounds like, from what Heather was saying, that maybe early on there were uh, people coming to Nebraska to receive this training. You mentioned, uh, she mentioned Norm McSwain. And oh. Can we talk a little bit about that, too? Yeah. Uh, the early times, it was the, the American College of Surgeons had taken it over and decided it should be a national program. And they wanted us to train some trainers. And so we had uh, people from all over the country who were coming to little old Lincoln, Nebraska, and going through this course and getting certified so that they could go out and teach more. And there was no certification until we made it certified. So we just kind of invented the certification. And I think too the way you're being the way you're being uh, um, Hughes said at one point when Dr. McSwain came it was all the region chiefs from the ACS um, and I think they all came to one course here in Lincoln in addition to random people as well. Then at some point it sounds like it probably moved more nationally and less centered in Nebraska. And that was about the time that I kind of faded out of the picture uh, because well I had other duties. Sure. Um, Randy, what uh, what was your father's involvement in ACS uh, after they took over the ACLS course? Was he uh, was he a teacher, instructor, or, or um, anything along those lines, or was just uh, an advocate? Yeah, I, I, he became an instructor, um, you know, early on. Uh, but then once once the uh, the course, you know, once it went out to the American College of Surgeons, and he he told me that you know his his intent as they were developing these courses. Was, you know, really, first foremost, mine kind of, um, uh, like Dr. Craig had mentioned, you know, he was really looking at it as a training course for hospitals in a rural setting, and that was kind of his mindset in developing it. So he was really just picturing it as being something they could take to these, these smaller hospitals and kind of teach them to do what they were doing in Lincoln. Um, so, and then I, once once it went to the American College, you know, like, like Dr. Craig said, it, it just kind of took off. Um, and he was an instructor for a little while. I'm not sure how long. It was like Dr. Craig, just a few years. And then, you know, his his duties, his private practice, and he was um, um, very involved in. I, I he was a, a I believe chief of surgery at one point at Lincoln General. So that was giving him a lot of a, you know obviously a lot of stuff to do. So 
he kind of uh, went away from the the instruction because the, the course had really kind of taken on a life of its own. And um, yeah, he, he he kind of stepped out as well and, and let it go. Um, in the uh, the late '80s, he uh, he quit his practice in in Lincoln and moved out to um, to uh, uh, California to to go into practice out here, um, and really didn't uh, think too much about ACLS from that. He was always very. Um, he didn't really talk very much about himself being, you know, the the, the 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 genesis of ATLS. He really didn't see it that way. He saw it. Uh, I think Dr. Craig explained it very well. Is it was really this effort of this team of all these people getting together at the right time and having this idea and pushing it forward. And that's just the kind of the way that he saw it. And really, um, ATLS kind of went on, and he went his way. And then it was, and I'm trying to remember the exact date. It was about 2003, I guess. Um, he got a call from uh, the the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma, and they asked him if he would come and speak about his role in ATLS at a conference they were having in San, in San Francisco. And um, that was the first time he ever publicly told the story about it, and it went over very well. And the next year, um, he was invited down to the, the American College um, Committee on Trauma's a convention down in or annual meeting down in San Diego. At that point, um, they awarded him the uh, meritorious uh, the award for meritorious achievement in trauma. And at that conference, they renamed the award the Dr. James Steiner Award, which was a huge honor for him. Um, and you know, shortly thereafter, he retired. Well, um, I think this has been fascinating, and, it, and it, it certainly provides a lot of insight into the way that the course is taught. Now, I mean, there's still a heavy emphasis on the um, sort of, you know, imagine that you're a rural provider with with one single nurse to assist, and a lot of the moulage scenarios have that kind of a setup where you either don't have access to surgical services or there's some barrier or something. And um, you know, many of the many of the scenarios are still built that way. Um, I've taught many courses over my time uh, in the trauma community, and uh, I, I've got to say that I, in some courses we're still using the Mr. Hurt head. Dr. Craig, so that that legacy lives on. Um, Heather, what are your current efforts in teaching ATLS? And do you think um, have you seen that people take sort of a special interest or pride in the fact that uh, this is a homegrown Nebraska product that that they're participating in? Yeah. So um, current efforts, you know, the 40th it is the 40th anniversary this spring. Uh, the 10th edition is coming out. Um, and, and we're very proud, especially here in Lincoln, you know, as as these interviews are coming up, you know, when you when I've been talking to Dr. Collicott and, you know, I talked to Dr. Craig and I uh you just heard Randy say that his dad was, you know, they're they're all so humbled. They're they don't think it was that big of a deal that they they sat down and they created a course three nights a week and um we're, we are. We are very proud of this course, and we just want to make sure that they get the recognition that they deserve um, as this 40th edition or the 40th anniversary comes out. You know, the 10th edition, obviously, it has evolved immensely. As I said, Dr. Craig showed me the original slide set, um, and it's pretty amazing to see um, how technology has evolved um, and you know we're continuing to change how we how we teach. You know, going to the hybrid format um, with the new tenth edition. 
um, and it's going to continue to evolve. So um, pretty exciting stuff. I, I would stick a word in here and say that's the single biggest thing I've ever done in my life. What an impact on the whole world. That's my, my father feels exactly the same way, and you know, like like as Heather indicated, you know, the humility with which he has always given the credit um, to the, the that that core group, you know, including himself and and Ron and and Jody, and not so much himself. He he sees himself as this 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 guy who went through this horrible thing and was just complaining, complaining. It took somebody like Dr. Craig kind of kick him in the bridges and, and say, yo, look, yeah, I'm sick of hearing you complain and you need to do something about it. And, yeah, it turns out um, he, he, he feels that same way, Dr. Craig, that it's, it's nothing that he could do is ever going to compare to it. And it's I, I, I like to, you know, I consider it, and my part, obviously, all I did was, you know, get in an airplane crash. Um, that was my contribution. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> The, uh, it gives me a lot of a lot of comfort, and it, even though it's taken me a, you know a long time to get to that point, you know in the process of, of writing the, the the book, that was really you know I wanted to tell that story, but I also wanted to um, you know I needed to kind of get to the facts of it, and uh, you know the process of doing that was so cathartic and was such good therapy for me, and to meet everybody that I did, and 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 get their stories was such a great thing. But it's it's also a very fitting tribute to my mother, you know, and, and it's a long stretch to say that that her dying was able to 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 create the opportunity for life for so many people. But I I do kind of see it that way, and you know that's 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 kind of fitting, you know. Should we all be so lucky? I guess. Going back Absolutely. to being proud, going back to being proud too. I I do want to mention, you know, when Dr. Craig showed me the slides that the introduction has the members of, you know, the group that that put this together with him and Dr. Steiner and, you know, Dr. Reed is a physician still in our community. Dr. Moda was a physician here in our community and his son is a trauma surgeon on our team still here in Lincoln. Dr. Lau, his son is a uh, family, or a internal medicine physician here in our hospital, and so, you know, asking these questions and you know stirring up these memories, it was really funny. I got an email from uh, Irvine, uh, Irvine one day, and she said, "I cannot believe I'm going through closets looking for stuff for you." Um, and, and same with Dr. Craig, I think, because you know, who would have thought, 40 years after creating a course some random person is asking you, tell me about when you when you started to write a course, and he found his original slide set. And so it's, it's really fun to see the memories come out and, you know, just to see it all come together. I always, I always have wondered, I mean, I've talked to my dad about it too, but if I could uh, ask Dr. Craig, it's, you know, did you, did you, was there any concept of, of, the, the the magnitude of of what you guys were doing when you were creating that that creating the course. I mean, did you really think that we're really onto something big here, or was it just more of? You know, my dad seems to looks at it more like, well, it's just we saw a gap that needed to be filled, so we we filled it. Yeah, mostly we thought we were going to create something that possibly be useful at us, and you know we we were thinking small, 
you know, these stories are so great. And I, um, I literally just finished teach, um, being course director for ATLS yesterday for our, you know, our annual big intern class that, um, that Dave is talking about. And um, I've taught it so many times. And every time that introductory slide about the, the crash, it's such an honor for me to actually hear the story from you guys um, because we, we tell that story all the time. My question for, for you three or for all of you is, is this, you know, um, uh, over the over the two day course, it's a lot of experts, a lot of attendees. It's very resource heavy now. You know, it's, it's obviously iteration after iteration. Um, trauma itself has become really complicated. And um, I um, do some global health work, and I've wondered, um, you know, it, what do you guys see for the future? And maybe having um, additional impact in low resource centers, you know, in the middle of Uganda or or wherever, where they may not be able to put on this 40, you know, um, two-day full course with all the bells and whistles. Do we go back to the beginning a little bit, almost as you guys were, you know, discussing that its initial intentions were for uh, rural settings? I don't know what your thoughts are about that. I could say, um, this is Randy, I know that, you know, speaking with my dad and doing the research, it seems, you know, for for the book, for um, the whole, really, concept, of of ATLS, I think that the the core the core concept of it was to base it in simplicity and to to get as much of the noise out of it as possible. I mean, that was sort of the development of the A B C D E. You know, find out what will kill a person fastest and treat that first, and don't worry about anything else. That concept of simplicity has always kind of followed, I think, the ATLS ideal around. And, you know, because of that, I think, yeah, it, it, it would be adaptable, you know, to be – you could do stripped-down um, versions of the course to some extent. I mean, I don't know – not be a doctor, and so I've never taken the course, so I don't know the extent you could do that. But, yeah, the, the, the military's um, mobile hospital concept is all wrapped around ATLS. And, uh, right. you know, having been a Marine and having seen – you know how that works. That that system. It's it's a very easy to deploy system. So, I I, I think that that evolution of the ATLS course and that concept is probably, you know, going to occur just by the nature of the course. Yeah. Yeah. This is Heather, and you know, Nebraska is a very rural um, state, and a lot of our participants are nurse practitioners and physician assistants, and we have a lot of critical access hospitals. And so I think going back to the basics, you know, like Randy said, your ABCs, um, and taking it back to the basics and not having all the bells and whistles, you know, I always say we're very fortunate in trauma centers because we do have a lot of resources. We have amazing technology. But the true heroes, the people that save our patients are those critical access hospitals and those volunteer EMS squads. Those are the folks that get them to the trauma centers that have all the resources. So I think you make a great point of, you know, taking it back a notch. Let's get back to the basics and, you know, teach people how to do um, the ABCs without the bells and whistles. This is Ron, and I can't agree with Heather more. Right. Well, one thing that this demonstrates most to me, the development of this course and the way that it's progressed is that it has been a multidisciplinary effort from its inception. I mean, it wasn't just surgeons. It wasn't just orthopedics. It wasn't just family or emergency medicine. It wasn't just nurses. I mean, everybody kind of had to come together and play a part in all this. And that, to me, epitomizes 
what I love best about trauma care is that it is a team of individuals from different disciplines who all come together sort of at the focal point of the injured patient to do what's best. And I think uh, the development of ATLS demonstrates that concept maybe more clearly than uh, anything, any other single thing that we do in trauma. Once again, going back to the basics of the course, you know, and seeing how it has evolved as a course over time was really, you know, the genius of the framework that Dr. Craig and, and Jody Upright and my father put together. It yeah. made it possible to evolve the way that it has, and it continues to evolve, and best practices continue to be, you know, inserted into the system. So it's, you know, just by the nature of, of how it's built, it's sort of that evolution factor and that ability to evolve is really built into the system, which really makes it a, 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 an incredible system. Yeah, that's a great point because no matter how complex trauma care has gotten, the basics are still the basics. They're the same as they were in the 1970s. That's fantastic, yeah. Well, this has been a great discussion. I appreciate everybody's time and effort to join us and to uh, share these things. I want to especially thank our guests, uh, Heather Talbot, uh, Randy Steiner, and uh, Dr. Ronald Craig. Thank you for this uh, really amazing historical uh, description and uh, insight into this whole program that you know is near and dear to many of our hearts, and it's really it's really interesting and and uh, I I felt quite uh, moving to hear the initial inception. So thank you all for your time. You're welcome. And Kevin, thanks for joining us as well. I always appreciate having a co-moderator on board. It was no thanks for having me. This was a great discussion. All right, thank you all very much. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.